The evening began as a social gathering of a bunch of college students. This was about 10 years ago. My wife and I, maybe even more, maybe 12, my wife and I were leading a college and young adult group at our E-Free Church in Southern California. A hospitable family with a pool, which is pretty common actually in Southern California. A hospitable family opened their home, and most importantly for about 30 to 40 college students, their kitchen, who quickly filled the space with conversation and play. There was no formal study that night. We were just going to fellowship. We were going to encourage one another, meet some new people. Such gatherings usually, and those social ones, had no planned teaching time, but they always seemed to give birth to off-the-cuff discussions with individuals or small groups of people regarding important topics of the Christian life. And on this night, that was especially true. Around an hour into the evening, a sharp-dressed young man, whom I'd met only on a few other occasions, came in and called out to me from the doorstep, called out to me, the leader of the group, from the other side of the room. Now, this time I was serving only part-time as a pastor. My main role was to be a professor of New Testament. And this bright young man came to this young adult group with a bunch of theological challenges he wanted to throw at me. Not quietly to the side by the chips and guac, right in front of the whole group. After cornering me in an open area in the kitchen, with voice raised and hands waving, and rhetorical skills on full display. This young man said for all to hear, Dr. Klink, can you give me any good reason why a Christian needs the church? The question was loaded, so much so that just as I reflected on it, I didn't answer right away, and he filled the gap quickly. In fact, Dr. Klink, I can give you several reasons why church is unnecessary or even harmful for the cause of Christ. He'd clearly thought about this. He then listed reasons that included things like finances. Does does, does not the cost of running a church waste funds that should go to people with real ministerial needs? A second one was fellowship. How does sitting in a room for an hour each week do anything more that can be accomplished when Christian friends meet with intentionality and purpose in any place, in any location, on any day of the week. And he even talked about faith. Can I not grow spiritually through many means beside and outside of a church? Like a prosecuting attorney, this young man concluded with this statement. I honestly believe, he said, that this generation needs to see that the church as we know it is unnecessary. Since you work for a church, Dr. Klink, how do you respond? The room, once filled with conversation and play, had grown very quiet. And all eyes, including my own wife, were looking right at me. I answered the young man's challenge regarding the role and necessity of the church for close to an hour. We went back and forth, calmly, but we were intense at times. I countered his rejection of the local church and shared what I believed biblically to be the essential ministry of the local church in the life and mission of every Christian. 
The young man listened and wanted to continue our discussion further, but ultimately left our conversation unconvinced. And I left with the conviction that the purpose, practices, and priority of the local church needs to be defended in this generation. Not only do those outside the church, but even to those who are already affiliated to the church by their faith in Christ, and certainly to this young man and arguably his generation. It's not a stretch to suggest that the thoughts and feelings of this bright young man would resonate with the thinking and even the practices of many who claim the name of Christ in this generation. Certainly in our own contemporary culture, but even among Christians of every persuasion, Christianity need, now needs to explain and in some cases make an argument for the church. Whether this is facilitated by the bad press related to sex abuse and financial corruption, which happens, seems like, monthly, or simply the perceived irrelevance of what might be viewed as an outdated institution and its practices, the church needs to make a case for its existence and purpose. In fact, there is a growing church-free movement. Don't hear that wrong. We are an E-free church. There is a church-free movement. As much as there's gluten-free and fat-free, there's now church-free Christianity. And it is growing leaps and bounds. Reflected in books like written by one named Kelly Bean, and here's the title, of Bean's book, How to Be a Christian Without Going to Church. I've got maybe a half dozen to a dozen books on one of my shelves of this church-free movement, and they are widespread and growing. Bean's book promotes and encourages a commitment to Christ with, get this, purposeful distinction and separation from the church. Really, the argument of her book is why you, why you need to do Christianity without the local church. Several key questions are lurking behind the attitudes and behaviors of Christians who have misplaced or displaced the local church in their Christian lives and practices. What is the church? Why does the church exist? How does the church function? What's the connection between a Christian and the church of God? These are biblical questions that require the whole biblical story to give a sufficient answer. And sadly, it is no longer outside the church who question its validity and relevance. Now more than ever, even committed Christians are unhitching themselves from formal church. And if anything, 2020 helped facilitate that. We have specific titles for these people. They, they even have titles now. Or they call themselves the spiritual but not religious. Or how about the duns? We're done with church. Or the de-churched. I would say, in sharp contrast, it is my conviction that the local church is how God ministers to his people and to the world. To speak even more forthrightly or pastorally, my concern is that the separation 
in part or full between the Christian and the local church is not simply unbiblical, if that were not bad enough, but actually detrimental to the life of every Christian and the message and work of Christianity in the world. I wanted to stop here at the start of our kind of fall ministry kickoff here this first week in September, really nearing the end of a series in the pastoral letters. We just finished 2 Timothy, and we would have jumped right into a five-ish week conclusion of Titus, and we will. But I talked with the staff and the elders about pausing for a few weeks so that we could address the concern of the church. And if anything, this concern a decade ago from a very bright young man, who, by the way, I ultimately served or officiated his wedding a few years later. Now he's married and the father of three children and has a slightly different view of the church, praise God. But I feel like after 2020, when literally about 25% of Christians who would participate in church just completely pulled away, and the whole question of the role of the church and the relationship of the church, if anything, those questions were underlined and highlighted in light of all that we've gone through, that it might be good to stop and to answer some of those questions. So I want to start with Christ's promise to the church in Matthew 16 that Dave just read for us. And Vera's right. This is in the context of Jesus' ministry where he's highlighting the misunderstanding of who he is and he wants to address that. That's the main context of this text. But the last couple verses that Dave read, Jesus, in light of who he is and the work that he's doing, makes a promise specifically about the local church that we better listen to today. So let me pray, ask the Lord to minister to us through his word, and then we'll jump in and look at Jesus' promise to the church. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your law. And help us to hear this promise and see how it fits and relates to every Christian and to every local church, including Hope Evangelical Free Church in Roscoe, Illinois. Lord, minister to us. Direct us to see what is true and right and good. Help us to hear your revealed will regarding your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If we were in Matthew, I'd be telling you, as we get to chapter 16, that Jesus' ministry is kind of getting to a point of a climax. Like all the conflict regarding Jesus and the confusion, really leading up to the point where Jesus is going to be arrested, tried, and crucified, is coming to a head. And Jesus knows it. The disciples are a little bit clueless, but he knows it. So he wants to see what they think is going on which is a fair question. And to be honest with you, even that young man who questioned me over 10 years ago was kind of wanting to see where I was on these things. At least in the providence of God, it made me realize way back then, somebody needs to say something about this. So we asked them, 
Who do people say that I'm? That is, you've been around the crowds. You've been handing out food after I've taken some bread and fish and given it to people. You're hearing the murmurs. You know what's, you've got family and friends that are like, that's awesome, you're with Jesus. Or, are you crazy? You've been around that. What are people saying? And in verse 14, they give a list. If we had time, we could show how each of those reflect different theological impressions of Jesus, political views. But he doesn't spend time on that at all. He doesn't critique any of those or nuance any of those. He, he just kind of wanted to set them up for this question that actually was not about the people to whom they was ministering, but to them. He says, but who do you say that I am? And good old Simon Peter, never afraid to speak, not quiet and shy, maybe like a John, the son of Zebedee, who's like, Peter, what do you think? Peter jumps up and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus, in verse 17, praises his answer. And even says in the middle of verse 17, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you. Like, again, that's an interesting statement. Like literally God is working in your life for you to see exactly who I am. And then he makes this promise representatively to the whole church in verse 18 and 19. And we want to hear this. Listen to what he says. He gives the word, the phrase, I will build my church. Like right after Peter rightly understands who Jesus is, Jesus explains the body of Christ, the church. Just note that. Jesus didn't just have it stop with him, is it? That's right. And for the rest of, the rest of your Christian life, it's kind of a you and me, baby. No, I will build my church. And listen to what he says. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That almost makes it sound like it's not going to be very light. Kind of makes it sound like there's a war going on. There's conflict. And then 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Think about that. Kids in here like, hey, dad, can I borrow the car? And how many, what's the words that, well, where are you going? Be careful. Hey, don't turn sharp. Maybe take the older car. God the Father gives us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a weird word. Whatever you bind, whatever you, whatever you release, there's authority. I think Christ made a promise of the church that speaks directly into this cultural moment. And in those verses, 18 and 19, Christ's promise to the church says four things. And I want to show you those. The first is this. Christ is the builder of the church. Notice he says, you, he doesn't say you will build. He doesn't say the church will build. It's, it's I will build. The whole biblical story tells of the formation of a people of all the nations. Even as we were singing those songs about praising God, it's your breath in our lungs. We sang over and over again because literally the breath in the lungs of people from all over creation 
are being redeemed by the gracious work of God in the world. That even right now, all over the globe, Christians are gathering this morning to worship King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In languages some of us will never speak. In people groups where they eat food we'd never want to eat. And just imagine the final gathering of the church. Like literally the Bible depicts this ultimate gathering where at the end of time, Christ the chief shepherd comes back to crush the gates of hell itself and will gather all God's people. And just imagine the beauty, right? Kings taking off their crowns in light of the throne of Christ. Peasants taking off their, their dirty, rotten robes and being clothed in Christ's righteousness. Death and cancer and tears being removed completely as we gather around Christ in our resurrected bodies. That if it's anything like Jesus, we'll have some semblance. There'll be white-skinned resurrection bodies and black-skinned resurrection bodies. Brothers and sisters, from all the ages gathered together, adopted by the Father. That's, that's the biblical story, and it's beautiful. But don't just think of it as some kind of abstract thought. Think of that as already beginning now. This is just kind of dress rehearsal in our little local embassy of the kingdom waiting for the king to come back to gather his saints. That's beautiful. By mentioning, even by mentioning Peter the rock, Jesus depicts the church as a powerful structure that he's designing. In your notes, I give you Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Look at those words if you have your notes with you. Paul says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Like you're not outsiders to this structure, this kingdom. You are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Built, I love verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That, that, that's kind of Paul's way of saying what God began in Genesis 12 with Abraham, he fulfills through Christ. With Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. Verse 21 in Ephesians 2, in whom, in Jesus, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There are some people still waiting, maybe in Israel, Jerusalem, for a temple to be built. And here, the Apostle Paul teaches that in Christ, the local churches collectively are the building of that temple. In him, verse 22 says in Ephesians 2, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this young man that challenged me on the church over a decade ago, what would he do with Ephesians 2? 19 to 22. Would he deny that Christ is building something? Would he deny this holy, sacred temple? Would he deny that the church is a special dwelling place for God? I don't think he can. So if I were asking you a question, who builds the church? Well, you might be tempted to say, well, uh, founding pastors, wrong. Celebrity pastors, totally wrong. A cool brand, marketing, wrong. 
Uh, money, power, wrong. Who builds the church? Can states or empires? Wrong. Who builds the church? How about just the Christians and the people of God? Still wrong. Who builds the church? Christ builds the church. That's what he promised. I. He didn't say we. He said I will build my church. The second thing is that my church, the second truth that we get from Christ's promise, the church belongs to Christ. Christ isn't just a builder. He's the owner. It's so important just to see what the text says and compare it to what it doesn't say. It says, I will build my church. It doesn't say, I will build the church. It doesn't say that. It says, I will build my church. That means Christ owns it. Christ owns it. Everything we do must be in submission and service to Christ. Think of your own lives this way. It's your breath. You just sang. Unless you weren't singing. I can't say everybody did, but I, I heard voices. It's your breath, you just sang, in my lungs. That's ownership language. And maybe you're just singing like, oh, I really, my coffee hadn't settled in yet. I just took over. There's coffee after. I need it. I, I wasn't even thinking. Maybe I should have thought about that before I sang. Or we should have had a little contract. Hey, if you're going to sign, if you're going to sing this, you better sign here. Because what you're about to say is contract language that you actually don't belong to you. Because that's what you're saying. It's your breath in my lungs. Something is obvious, seemingly natural, but is totally essential to your very existence. Doesn't even belong to you. Wait, it's inside me, isn't it mine? Wrong. It belongs to Christ the King. It's your breath, Lord, in my lungs. That's ownership language. That means my time, my talent, my treasure, it belongs to you. You say do, I do. You say go, I go. You say give, I give. Because my life is yours. Well, if that's true for us individually, brothers and sisters, that's true for us collectively. Christ said these words, I will build my church. This is the church of Jesus Christ. The third thing we can see in Christ's promise to the church, specifically in verses 18 and 19, is this. Nothing can stop the church. Jesus' words, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell is an interesting image. It alludes to the forces of evil and death. They are powerless, this promise says. They are powerless against Christ and his church. The image is interesting. The image, the gates of hell, it doesn't say armies, it says the gates. Anybody ever seen Lord of the Rings? Remember those gates of, what is it, Mordor? Those that kind of scary that the ominous music would play? Those big gates standing there? Maybe you read the book. Like, I don't watch the movies. I only read the books. Well, I watched the movies and didn't read the books. But you see these huge gates with these ominous kind of scary creatures that come out. And every time, right, whether it's Frodo or whoever it is, this powerful army that seems insurmountable with this evil, powerful force on the inside. In the ancient world, Gates' language spoke of something like that, which is, which is arguably why Tolkien, when he wrote the book, is using classic imagery of 
gates. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. The gates of hell. Picture Mordor, but worse. And it just feels insurmountable. What's Frodo going to do against that? It just seems insurmountable. How, how can anybody hang with that and fight? And that's what it could look as we look at the world and we see the, the pagan world and our own sinful flesh. And we see the power of Satan and the devil. And it's like, man, I don't know if we can compete with that. And Christ says, don't ever think that again. Because I'm telling you, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a promise. This doesn't mean that nothing bad can happen. It means that nothing bad can overcome the church or defeat the church. It doesn't mean that there aren't sinful people who sin in and hurt and wound churches or individual Christians. They sure do. We have proof of that in our own midst. It simply means that that will never end Christ's church because it doesn't belong to anybody else but him. The last thing he says there in verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, suggests that the church bears the authority of God. In sharp contrast to defeat, the church will be victorious. Against the gates of hell stand the keys of heaven. The church will accomplish exactly what Christ the King empowers it to do for his kingdom. It is interesting when you think about Tolkien and you think about even the titles of those movies where there's this one called The Return of the King. Boy, does the church not wait for that? So do you see those aspects of Christ's promise to the church? He's the builder of the church. Christ, the church belongs to Christ. Nothing can stop the church and the church bears the authority of God. The last thing that we just need to say this morning what does this look like for us, though, now? That just sounds really cool and really great, but what is, how, how's that promise then work itself out in my own individual Christian life? Like, help, help me get there, because I love that. Like, give me the picture, give me the, give, me, give me the bookmark I can put in my Bible, give me the T-shirt or the plaque, but what's that look like for me where regularly I am an active committed, serving, and receiving participant in that church of Christ. What's that look like? Well, that's what we need to talk about. That's why I wanted to stop and say, hey, let's talk about this. In fact, I, I, even, I even wrote a whole book on this thing. And I kind of felt a little silly that I'd written this book for other people. I never shared anything with you. It's, it's literally called the local church. What it is and why it matters for every Christian. I, I want to share some of that with you. After seeing churches split and Christians divide and disengage from the church, we need a series. We need to pause for a few weeks and give, give a few talks on Sunday morning that explain God's design for the local church and it's Christians. Like, what, what is it? Or, or maybe we can even start, we'll do this next week, what isn't the church? Like, we better define what it's not before we define what it is. And why does the church exist? How does the church function? What's the connection between me, a Christian, and the local church? 
Or, and finally, how does Christianity happen in the local church? Like, what does the church do that helps me live out this Christian life? Because I'm guessing that young man is not so different than many in our general evangelical world. I'm guessing there's a whole host of people. Let's see, this is some of the church's practices as outdated versions of Christianity or something to that effect, rather than the essential part of what it means to be disciples of Jesus. So we kind of need to make a case for the local church, even in the church. And I think that isn't denying Christ's promise. I wonder if it in itself is fulfilling the very thing Christ promised, that he would, through the ministry of his church, help explain the sacred and significant role of the gathering people of God in every generation. And if anything, I think we need it now. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for your kindness and your ministry of mercy. And we want to be your church. We want to know the power, the keys of the kingdom. We want to see that the gates of hell have no bearing in authority in our place. Father, we want to love our siblings well. We, we, we want to grow and be well fed in this home called the church. We want you to build us. So we pray that this series would, re, would helpfully remind us or redirect us or reinstate us into the beauty of your church. Now as we finished hearing from your word and finished taking in your ordinance of the Lord's Supper together, may you receive this closing song as our praise and thanks to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.